0: Welcome everybody to episode 13 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chloe. How are you?
2: Hi, good. I'm excited to be back. We had an unexpected week off due to sickness, so I'm happy to be back because it felt weird to not do this for a week and not let anyone know.
0: (laughs) It did. It was strange to not see it pop up on my phone. New episode. I get so excited, but I'm alive and well, so we're ready to roll this week.
2: That's good. And we've got some feedback to run through at the end of the show today. So, Stick around after the case concludes to hear that. Um, Just some things we're working on and little changes we're making to improve the show.
0: One of those changes is the repetitious show notes at the beginning of each episode. So it's basically us shamelessly plugging our Patreon page. We're going to be dropping that moving forward and jumping straight into the case. And we'll run over the Patreon details at the end of each episode. But we'll still be giving our shout outs up front and we have a few today, Chloe.
2: Yeah, so thank you so much to Fiona Somerville, Fiona Rayner, Kelly McMaster, Elizabeth Campbell, Fiona O'Sullivan, Beck Young and Mel Sharp.
0: Thank you, everyone. We sincerely appreciate that support, particularly from the Fionas there, Chloe. We've clearly got that segment of the market covered, I think. (laughs) Yes. Today, we're talking about one of our country's most infamous unsolved murders, and it's a double murder, a particularly brutal one with a long list of sightings and descriptions, persons of interest and suspects. Many frustrations in the police investigation as well, and a lot of sadness for the surviving families of the victims. It's set against the backdrop of a well-known set of beaches in Sydney, New South Wales, and the beach is something our country has become known for. Pristine beaches, the sun, the surf, barbecues, swimming and hanging out with family and friends. But this cultural staple would become the scene of a horrifying pair of sexually motivated murders that would shock the entire country. Monday the 11th of January, 1965. Cronulla Beach, Sydney, New South Wales. Peter said to Wolfgang, Go and see where the girls are. Wolfgang obeyed his older brother and went for a stroll into the dunes. All he really wanted to do was swim, but it wasn't that warm and the wind was whipping the sand and hurting their legs. He saw Marianne and her friend Christine walking over the dunes in the wrong direction. The surfy boy from earlier that day was with them, in the middle of them, and he looked angry. He kept asking for their names. Wolfgang didn't think much of it. Maybe they knew the boy. Maybe he was playing games with them. Who knows? Another thing Wolfgang didn't know was this was the last time he'd see his sister and her friend alive. The next time he'd be walking Wanda Beach would be with detectives, trailing the mystery killer, who's evaded capture to this very day. After the conclusion of the Second World War, the Australian government made a decision to populate or perish, in response to the lack of people we had in this country at the time when war was declared on Germany by Britain, the powers that be recognised we had a small population when compared with the rest of the world. So, around this time, they encouraged immigration from not just Britain, but the USA, Italy, Greece, Spain, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and broader Scandinavia. Germans too were included in these assisted migration passages our federal government began offering. Despite the war with Germany, their citizens were skilled and valued workers, and the Australian government struck a deal with the West German government to take 4,000 immigrants per annum. A few years later, when they hadn't met their desired quota, Australia opened up its borders even wider to non-European immigrants.
2: The Schmidt family was one of the German families who made the voyage to Australia to begin a new chapter – Helmut and Elizabeth Schmidt had six children when they migrated, Helmut Jr., Marianne, Hans, Peter, Trixie and Wolfgang, that welcomed Norbert into the family after they arrived in Australia. On a side note, Elizabeth also had another son from her first marriage, but he remained in West Germany and they subsequently fell out of touch.
0: They arrived in Australia on the 13th of September 1958 in Melbourne and lived in a number of places thereafter. Bonagilla Migrant Camp, Greta Camp, the Unandara Migrant Hostel, before they moved to the New South Wales town of Tamora, which is in the Riverina district. After a brief period there, the Schmidt family moved to West Ryde in Sydney, in a commission residence located in Brush Road. Helmut Schmidt, the family's patriarch, worked as a carpenter to support his family. However, tragedy would strike in 1964 when Helmut was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer, one that my father also had, actually, my old man survived, but unfortunately, Helmut Schmidt did not. He passed away on the 15th of June, 1964.
2: Having been in Australia for a short while, moving around so much in the early days and just settling in West Ride, I imagine this must have been quite a crushing blow for the young family. But their lives went on, they had to. Next door to the Schmidt family lived 15-year-old Christine Sharrock. She lived with her maternal grandparents, which she'd chosen, after her mother Beryl had remarried after her father's passing and moved north to Seven Hills. So Christine elected to stay in the area with her grandparents, Jim and Jeanette Taig.
0: Christine struck up an immediate friendship with her fellow 15-year-old neighbour, mary Schmidt. The pair got along very well, and although they attended different schools, they hung out regularly And in the summer of 64-65, they both decided to finish school and were awaiting their final exam results over the Christmas New Year period. And I think leading into the next part of the story, it's a good opportunity to speak about the landscape of Australia, particularly this area of Sydney at this time. And we touched on this a little bit in last week's episode, Australia's beach and surfy culture had really started to form and solidify around this time. The rocking 50s, the Elvis era I suppose, still had a lingering effect, but by and large many Australians were now enjoying sunbaking, surfing, attending the beach, swimming and hanging out with friends. At this time the beach almost took over the outback as the iconic Australian image that would be portrayed to the rest of the world.
2: And that's still the view I think that many people have from overseas to this day, right? The beach, the sun, beers and barbecues. It's very much an ingrained part of the Australian culture that took shape and cemented itself during this time in the 60s. Beaches were only growing in popularity as the country's population grew with the new wave of immigrants. So it was a very natural thing for people in these areas to gravitate towards the beaches for entertainment and relaxation. Bate Bay,
0: south of the well known Botany Bay, is home to a five kilometre stretch of beach, which is Sydney's longest span of beach. And the area is actually broken up into four beaches of different names. You've got Cronulla, North Cronulla, Allura, and Wanda. This was also the only beach that was accessible by train at the time. The Schmidt family attended the beaches in Cronulla on a semi regular basis. In the week beginning Sunday, the 10th of January, they had attended just the week before for a visit, and it was good entertainment for the young and large family. And it held some emotional significance too. Helmut Schmidt had taken the kids there many times before his passing.
2: So Marianne Schmidt had proposed a trip with her younger siblings to the Cronulla beaches on Sunday, the 10th of May. She asked her mother if it was okay. Her mother was actually in hospital at the time, recovering from some surgery, but her mother said it was okay if they were careful and looked after the younger ones. Marianne asked her friend and neighbour Christine to accompany them.
0: But on that Sunday, it ended up belting down with rain, so they abandoned their plans and rescheduled for the following day, Monday the 11th of January. Her two brothers, Helmut, who was two years older than Marianne, and Hans, two years younger than her, stayed at home to complete some chores. So Marianne prepared her younger siblings for the trip to Cronulla Beach in the morning. She made up some marmite, tomato and cucumber sandwiches. Next door, Christine packed lightly, telling her nan Jeanette that she'd just grabbed some chips near the beach with a one pound note she had. And she made a comment that was innocuous at the time, but later would come to potentially mean much more.
1: Christine had a conversation with her grandmother as she prepared um, her things for the trip to the beach, saying that she hoped that they'd be able to walk through the sand hills again. Her grandmother asked her not to do so because they had the younger children, the younger Schmidt children, with them. But Christine was determined to do
0: so. That was Alan Whittaker there, who wrote a book on this case. We'll hear a bit more from him as we go.
2: Around the 8.30am mark, the Schmidt family, with Marianne and Christine leading the way left their homes and walked to the train station after missing the bus they'd intended to catch. They got the train from West Ride to Redfern where they'd changed to the connecting Cronulla train and they arrived there around 11am. So it was a fair hike from West Ride to the Cronulla beaches at this time, best part of one and a half to two hours. On this train ride, Marianne and Christine allegedly spoke to someone who became a person of interest.
1: In reconstructing the final movements of the children, Um, Trixie Schmidt told police that the girls were seen talking to a 15-year-old boy uh, on the train to Redfin. The boy hopped off at Redfin while the rest of the family uh, caught the adjoining train uh, to Cronulla.
0: The main Cronulla surf beach they initially went to was closed due to windy and hazardous conditions. So instead, Marianne and Christine took the kids to the southern end of the beach and sat on some rocks. Despite the poor weather conditions, young Wolfgang was keen for a swim, so Marianne eventually relented and took him for a dip, before the group had their sandwiches for lunch and went for a stroll after hiding their bags within the rocks. They walked north, down onto the unpatrolled Allura Beach, past the Wanda Surf Club, before the children complained about the whipping wind on their legs so much that Christine and Marianne said to the kids that they'd head back to get the bags and then take them all home. The northern areas, so Allura and Wanda, backed onto a nature reserve, and north of Wanda there's the area which was known as Green Hills, which is basically three and a half kilometres of pale green dunes, they're now all but washed away. It had been used as a backdrop in some famous Australian television and movies like Puberty Blues and Mad Max 3.
2: The Wonder Beach area was pretty desolate and the dunes beyond the beach were a haven for perverts and people who conducted illicit activity of the time. This area was a place where people would go to get away from prying eyes. It was fairly scrubby and dirty with lots of trash around, discarded metal objects, glass and just general waste flocking the dunes behind Wanda.
0: So we're probably not painting a nice picture of the place. I just think it's important to note that this isn't some flat, pristine area we're talking about. There are spots like that, but it did have these undulating dunes and sort of scrubland areas as well. So they set the kids up in a nook amongst the dunes, out of the wind, gave them Christine's wireless radio she'd brought along to keep the kids company, but they continued north, which was the opposite direction to where they'd come from and needed to go to retrieve the bags. This wasn't lost on Peter, the eldest of the kids there, who yelled out to the girls that they were heading the wrong way. But the girls just turned and laughed and continued heading in the northerly direction. And although they weren't to know it at the time, this would be the last time the Schmidt children would see their sister, Marianne, and her friend Christine. This would also become the most heated debate until even recent times. What was the reason the girls left that day?
2: The four siblings waited in the dunes for three hours or so until at 5pm, when after no sign of their sister or Christine, they went back and retrieved their bags, which were untouched, and headed back to the Cronulla train station. They caught the last train of the day back to West Ride, where they arrived home around 8pm and told their brother Hans that the girls had gone missing. Hans delivered Christine's bag next door to her grandmother, who would end up being the one who'd report the girls missing. Eldest of the Schmidt kids, Helmut, was visiting his mother in hospital at the time. He expressed his concern to his mother that they hadn't returned home by the time he'd left to visit her, but he'd call later on to let her know once Marianne had arrived home with the kids.
0: That call wouldn't come for Mrs Schmidt. The police would arrive later in the evening and commence interviewing family members, and pretty early on the thoughts were that the girls had met some boys, and that was the initial line of thinking from the police. Marianne's older brothers were unable to give police much insight into that, Marianne wasn't known for associating with boys, nor was Christine. Both girls were only 15, and if anything, only beginning that phase of their adolescence. The girls were widely known as sensible young women who conducted themselves properly, so it was very out of character that they'd uh, taken off at all, let alone for such an extended period of time, without returning to Marianne's siblings. Christine had had a bad experience also with a man about a year earlier at the Seven Hills train station. This guy had exposed himself to her and that had troubled Christine so she was aware of and guarded against this type of behaviour but at this stage the main concern was that the girls had taken off and were most likely stranded someplace not being able to get the train home or afford a taxi. But that concern would turn into panic when they hadn't heard any sign of the girls the following morning.
2: The police arrived back at the Taig and Schmidt households the following morning, after some preliminary inquiries the night before, and they had commenced questioning. Generally speaking, they appeared to be following the theory of the most likely explanation being the most probable. To them, factoring the girls' age, they were thinking along the lines of the girls having met with some boys. But when the families indicated otherwise, as the police were building this profile of the girls', they had to begin considering other possibilities.
0: The next theory was that they'd met someone they knew, so the police began with this line of inquiry, and this commonly begins working from the family outward. Helmut had kept the younger children away from the police the night before, but in the morning, police were able to speak with them. The police first spoke with Peter, who reiterated the basics of the story. They were left in the sand hills, they'd walked the wrong way, not returned... They'd played in the sand for a while, a long while, and then gone home when the girls hadn't shown up. Young Beatrice, or Trixie, was too upset. She cried when the police spoke to her, and she was subsequently unable to offer any details. I mean, these are young kids too we're talking about here, let's not forget that. At this stage, the Schmidt children hadn't recalled anything that could aid police to find Marianne and Christine, who at this point, rolling into the afternoon on Tuesday the 12th, was still presumed missing. That would change as the afternoon went along.
2: 17-year-old Peter Smith had recently travelled down to Sydney from the New South Wales central coast to look for work. He was staying with his sister, who lived locally with her husband and children. After attending a job interview on Monday, on Tuesday, Peter took his nephews down to the beach for an outing to have a play and walk amongst the sand dunes. It was a much nicer day on the Tuesday, as opposed to the blustery Monday of the day prior. Around 2.30pm in this afternoon, as Peter and his nephews were strolling through the dunes, they came across what appeared to be at first a mannequin buried in the sand. They were about two and a half kilometres north of the Wanda Surf Club.
0: Peter inspected the body, brushed back some of the hair, and quickly realised it was the body of a female, not a mannequin at all. He rushed off with the young kids in tow. Obviously, he was not wanting them to spend too much time looking at the buried body, and he went back to the southerly direction towards the Wanda Surf Club where he reported what he'd seen to Barry Ezzi a surf lifesaver who was on patrol there at the time and they contacted the police immediately after this when detectives from the Sydney CIB attended Wanda Beach and went to the scene with Peter Smith and Barry Ezzi they were shocked to find that it wasn't just the one body but two bodies of young females who had not been buried but had had sand essentially thrown over their bodies, heaped over their bodies really, to mostly cover them except for a portion of one girl's head and some feet sticking out. Detectives secured the site and it basically went into lockdown overnight as police examined the immediate and surrounding scene. The bodies of the two girls were more visible once the top layer of sand had been removed. One of the girls, who we know to be Marianne Schmidt, but this wasn't known at the time, she was lying on her right side with her knees tucked up a bit, and the second girl, who we know to be Christine Sharrick, was face down in the sand, her right arm bent in kind of a shielding manner, as if attempting to protect her face.
2: The bodies were positioned parallel to one another, with Christine's head touching Marianne's feet. Marianne had been wearing a bathing costume under her clothes, a one piece. This bathing suit had been cut out at the crotch and pulled up around her breasts. Over the top of the bathing suit, she had on a multicoloured sleeveless top. Christine had on a green and white patterned sleeveless top and her white shorts had been removed and shoved into her crotch. Her sanitary belt and pad left to the right-hand side of her buttocks. Robbery was ruled out as a motive pretty quickly as Christine had quite a lot of gold jewellery on, a heart-shaped locket and a ring and bracelet on. It was
0: the drag marks nearby that stood out to detectives. Going north, there was a drag line from Christine's body for about 35 metres and it led to a gully between two sand dunes. There were bloodstains discovered in the sand and surrounding scrub that would be consistent with Christine having been killed in that location some 35 metres away and then dragged back to Mary-Anne's body. As time went on and the police further examined the area, the extent and the sheer brutality of the girls' injuries and wounds inflicted on them would become more and more apparent, the details of which we'll get into when we summarise the postmortem. but to begin with, there were obvious signs of sexual assault from the outset. Police pieced together that Mary Ann was laying either dead or dying, and Christine at this point had attempted to flee, but had been caught and subdued by the killer and either killed or rendered unconscious before being dragged back to Marianne where he probably sexually assaulted them and covered them in sand. Christine had clearly been hit from behind with a blunt object. She had another clear blow to her chin, black eyes and generally her face was misshapen and she had a noticeable stab marks in her back. Marianne's throat had been savagely cut, reportedly almost decapitated but I think these reports were exaggerated but it had been slashed and she was also stabbed a number of times and sexually assaulted as well.
2: They determined the girls had died within half an hour of one another and it would be only a couple of hours later the formal identification process would begin. At 4.30pm police visited the Schmidt and Taig residents in West Ride to obtain as much information as they could on the two missing girls. They spoke with the Schmidt family first in their front yard, trying to glean info, but didn't mention they'd found the two bodies yet.
0: The eldest of the Schmidt boys, Helmut and his younger brother, Hans, were visiting their mother in hospital and they broke the news to her that Marianne hadn't come back home the night before, which obviously concerned them greatly. She'd asked the boys for updates over the phone from the TAGs and the nursing staff to let her know if any news came in, even in the middle of the night, to wake her and let her know. But obviously, post-surgery, she was unable to leave the hospital. The police also visited the Tags next door with the same intentions of gleaning some further information. While they attended the Tags, however, one of the detectives still back at the Schmitts got an interesting tale from young Wolfgang Schmidt, something that the police hadn't heard up until this point.
2: Wolfgang said he had seen a fat boy walking with the two girls after they left the four kids in the dunes. Wolfgang had gone after them not long after they'd left and he said this boy had nothing on except his trousers, which were light grey, and that he had a blue towel over his shoulders and fair hair and they were around 40 or 50 metres away from him when he saw them. This statement or the details of it exactly would change over time. At one point, Wolfgang Schmidt stated he saw Marianne and Christine talking to a young man who was fishing and attempting to catch crabs. Wolfgang said that he had had a fishing spear and knife on his hip he described the youth as a high school-aged, fair-haired, slim build, a typical surfer type from the time in the area.
0: Wolfgang would later add to his recollection of events that he'd seen this youth walking between the girls later in the day after they walked off into the dunes and he'd followed them briefly to see what they were up to, noting that the young man seemed angry and was asking the girls their names. Later, Wolfgang said the young surfer returned to the area... And when Wolfgang spotted him, he asked, where are the girls? But the surfy boy didn't reply. Wolfgang asserted that the knife previously sheathed on his hip was no longer there. And he also altered the detail that the young surfy's hair was more light brown than blonde.
2: It's important to note that none of the other Schmidt children saw the blonde surfy youth, and Wolfgang was possibly suggestive. There were times when the police said he seemed guided by his older brother Helmut, who also presented strangely to the police whenever interviewed. This was particularly the case when the police were working on kits of the suspect with Wolfgang, and he seemed just too agreeable, basically going along with everything the artists and the police were proposing. But Wolfgang and all the Schmidt children would have been under a tremendous amount of stress at the time.
0: So it's very possible Wolfgang's version of things was skewed, maybe unintentionally. Many believed him, and the media reports at the time had things like Wolfgang saw the killer, young Schmidt boy leads detectives on killer's trail, things to that effect. Long story short, the police investigation seemed to narrow on this blonde surfy youth, but it didn't lead to anything substantial. And the issue was this broad description pretty much described every young man in Cronulla and the surrounding areas at the time. Police, by and large, seemed to be of the opinion that Wolfgang's statements were not the most concrete, mainly due to the fact that none of his siblings could corroborate his version of events. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Back at Wanda Beach, police had secured the site and were doing as much as they could with the limited daylight they had left. They floodlit the area and searched the surrounds, although this was somewhat limited with the equipment of the time. They brought in earth-moving equipment and dug and dumped the dirt through a sieve to search for clues. Police worked tirelessly, working through the night to comb for clues and chase down any piece of information or tip they came across. Later that night, the police drove a four-wheel drive to the scene and used it as a makeshift hearse of sorts to transport the two girls' bodies away for medical examination.
0: Christine Sharrock's uncle, Leslie Taig, was tasked with the unenviable duty of identifying the two girls, which must have been a horrifying ordeal for him, having seen Christine alive only a few days earlier. The families of the girls were informed of their deaths shortly after the identification. And then we get to the post-mortem examinations which are, for warning listeners, very graphic in nature but important in the sense that we still don't know who murdered these girls so any clue or method of operation has to be considered here.
2: Christine Sharrock had suffered a fractured skull, multiple knife wounds to her back, behind her ear and neck. Both eyes were badly bruised and she had an abrasion to her chin and, as we said, quite a distorted facial features from the beating. She had other minor scratches on her neck and legs. From the wounds, they were able to determine that a knife was used about two and a half inches long, with one sharp and one serrated side potentially. Christine had
0: evidence of sexual assault, no sperm found, but an abrasion to her external genitalia. Interestingly, her hymen was intact, meaning the sexual penetration was insufficient depth. Samples of tissue from around this area and blood and hair were taken and sent for testing. Interestingly again, Christine's BAC level returned a result of 0.015, which was said to be enough to mean she'd had a small glass of beer. This contradicted reports on the girl's personalities, and although it was acknowledged that fermented food in the gut could lead to false positives – the medical examiner at the time concluded via a titration and gas chromataph test that alcohol had been consumed orally. Christine also had traces of cabbage and celery found in her stomach. They were able to tell that this food had been consumed within an hour before her death and it was assumed to have been a Chinese meal at the time but as author Alan Whitaker says, was probably more likely an Aussie staple from the era.
1: Police believe that they may have known the person who killed them. Um, They could have sat quietly, maybe even shared a sip of beer, maybe shared a a meal, such as a chico roll, and then things have turned violent.
2: Marianne Schmidt had also suffered a number of stab wounds to her arms, breast and back, along with a gaping laceration to her throat. She too had minor cuts on her, notably a finger-like mark on her thigh. The stab wound to her breasts had punctured her heart and that would be the wound that killed her. And as we said, Marianne also had her bathers cut off. She had been sexually assaulted. They did find a male sperm sample on this occasion, which was preserved in evidence. And Marianne's hymen was also intact. The semen sample could have led to the killer's identity in years later, with the advent of DNA technology and more recently, genetic genealogy. However, the evidence handling of the day wasn't like it is now. The sample would eventually be lost. Marianne's stomach was empty of any contents and she returned a nil BAC level. And because
0: of this and the lunch she'd eaten earlier with her siblings, the medical examiners were able to determine from predominantly the tomatoes, I understand, that her time of death would have been at least two to three hours after she'd eaten. Police sifted through hundreds of tonnes of sand and combed the area looking for clues, However, they didn't really come up with anything to begin with, and as we mentioned, the area was probably full of red herrings anyway. And the police search, I mean, they were very diligent, but we're not talking about a forensic sweep like nowadays. I saw in pictures the equipment was fairly crude, the sifting of loads of sand coming out of mini excavators was rudimentary, but it was genuine for the time, and the police worked extremely hard.
2: There were a few knives found, but none that linked to the murder. However, they did find a busted blade that was tested, found to have some blood trace on there, that could have been used as a murder weapon. A metal expert suggested it was possibly from the USA or Europe, but I'm not sure this was ever definitively linked. They found other stuff too, towels, a spearhead, and other bits and pieces. As we said, it was a bit of a littered area, but nothing linked to the crime. Basically, they had no murder weapon from the scene and no leads other than what Wolfgang had said. And I suppose that leads us neatly to the ensuing media storm that took place in the wake of discovering the girls' bodies and the people who would come forward and attempt to fill in the many gaps the police had to fill in their investigation to begin narrowing down suspects.
0: One such person was a guy by the name of Dennis Dostein. He was a 32-year-old fire officer from Sylvania Heights and he'd taken his young son for a stroll along the beach on Monday the 11th Dostein recalled it to be a blustery, overcast kind of day, not typical beach-going weather, but he was a regular at the Wanda Surf Club and surrounds, so it wasn't unusual for him to be strolling around the area at this time. In the early afternoon around 12.45, Dostein was heading back towards the Wanda Surf Club when he saw a few people that may or may not be of relevance to the police investigation, He came forward and explained that he saw two girls on horseback at a nearby pony club and a young man approximately 19 years old, tall, with fair hair and a pale complexion, wearing khaki shorts and a white t-shirt. This was about a couple of hundred metres north of the murder scene at around 12.45, as we said.
2: Then closer to 1pm, when Dostein and his son were a couple of hundred metres closer to the Wanda Surf Club, he saw two girls who matched Marianne and Christine's description. Mid-teens, slim, wearing the greeny coloured top and the other in black stretch shorts. He said, so this generally matched what the girls were wearing. Justine had said that they were heading north in a kind of fast walk and one of them kept looking back over her shoulder as if she was being or expected to be followed by someone. But Dostine didn't see anyone else in the immediate vicinity or following the girls.
0: He arrived at the Wanda Surf Club at about 1.05pm and along the way between his sighting of the girls, maybe 400 metres north of the club, he saw a man and woman play fighting on the beach, some couples sunbaking, a group of young girls and boys fossicking in the dunes and he passed a man who was approximately 40 to 50 years old, 5 foot 5 with a strong stocky build, tanned wearing black trunks and carrying a towel. The man commented to Dostein that it was a windy day and Dostein acknowledged it. He revisited the dunes at Wanda with the police, retracing his steps in relation to where he'd seen the girls. But really, other than seeing the youth and the suntanned guy and commenting that the girls were glancing over their shoulder... Uh, He really didn't have anything to add despite being one of the last people to possibly see the girls. Incidentally, the media stories and police appeals asking for people to come forward and speak with them would yield no results in terms of identifying the pale youth and the suntanned man. We still don't know to this day who they were.
2: The two girls Dostine had seen at the nearby pony club were named Louise Coffey and Julianne Williams. They too spoke with the police and saw people at Wanda at around the time of the girls' murders. Firstly, the girls had encountered the Schmidt boys, Peter and Wolfgang, who had approached them while they were on the beach, asking to ride their horses, like a pair of cheeky youngsters would. The girls fobbed them off, telling them their horses were too frisky for them. The girls
0: also saw two or three boys with a dog in the sand hills, around 300 metres north of the surf club, and before they got to the Green Hills area, another man described as 30-year-old, stocky build, round face, dark brown hair with a curl on his forehead, wearing fawn-colored shorts and a bright shirt. And this was sometime either side of 1 p.m. Around 3.30 p.m., the girls passed a man walking his dog on a chain and saw four men in the sand hills who were dressed as rockers. They steered clear of these lads. And then finally, as they reached the most northern part of their trek, which was around 200 metres from the murder scene, they spotted a man in the Sandhills wearing long grey baggy trousers, holding a towel that was bundled up, but there were numerous other sightings of questionable individuals in this somewhat seedy area as well.
1: Uh, a number of other witnesses came forward, two young girls riding horses in the Sandhills, um, later told police of a man walking naked between the Sandhills. Now, Wanda Beach, especially the sand hills area, was known as a, a, a pest area, where people often uh, went into the into the area uh, to sunbake nude or to take uh, part in illicit uh, sexual acts. And so the girls were actually walking into an area that they weren't that familiar with. Um, other suspects saw people um, jogging through the hills, um, saw a man Um, hiding under uh, corrugated iron, obviously perving on some of the young women up there.
0: The police continually requested people to come forward with information in the time following the murders, in news reports and throughout the tabloid press. They encouraged people to come forward even if they thought it was a minuscule detail, seemingly irrelevant. But for whatever reason, the majority of these people we've mentioned did not come forward and were not identified. But the direction the police took the investigation, an investigation with a crime scene that yielded few clues and had no real eyewitnesses who'd come forward, was the angle that the girls had run afoul by a youth, a young man who they'd either planned to meet that day or had come across and spoken to, perhaps met later and things turned bad, maybe the guy on the train, maybe the guy catching the crabs, maybe a guy from their previous visit to the beach in the weeks prior. The girls were described by all as decent, respectable young women, as we've said, and no one would contradict that, but they were 15 and coming into a time when they were noticing boys. Their diaries, which police read during the investigation, corroborated this theory with notes about different boys they had interests in and had socialised with.
2: And the theory evolved into something along the lines of the girls had visited the beach the weekend before, had met back up with the youth, not long after leaving the Schmidt kids in the dunes, before having an interaction with him, possibly sharing a Chinese meal or chico roll, possibly drinking a little beer, before this youth turned on the girls, for one reason or another, premeditated or otherwise. Police would eventually end up interviewing and clearing around 14,000 people during this investigation, Many who were fitting the blonde surfy description. And that's a lot of people in man hours right there.
0: Numerous reports would also come flooding in on different creeps and perverts in the Wanda Green Hills area, too. And these reports would lead to the forming of a person of interest who was seen around the Wanda Beach area on the day of the murder. And this guy would become known as the Fat Man. He was cited by numerous people on the day of the murders. And one report about him from a bit earlier in the summer in particular was quite interesting. This came from a lady named Shirley Lennon who reported this serial pest a few times in the summer of 63-64. On one occasion, this guy approached Mrs. Lennon while she was sunbaking in the secluded area of Allura Beach and he sat down next to her, produced a pornographic magazine and began asking her questions and stating some pretty crude things – There were numerous other stories about this guy, all the descriptions of him matching, 5'11", dark brown, almost black hair, brushed to one side, a round chubby face, very babyish, and of what I'd call a skinny fat sort of physique, he was out of shape but not well built. He wore grey trousers and a Bond's athletic singlet. Reports of encounters with the fat man always had a few commonalities – He referenced girls in bikinis, made lewd sexual remarks, mentioned he was from Adelaide, and usually carried pornographic material, a towel, and occasionally a transistor radio.
2: Shirley Lennon had a few interesting encounters with this serial pest, as did many others. But one such time she recalled an interesting fact that piqued police interest, which was that one time the fat man had offered to go buy her some beer and bring it back. This lent to the theory that Christine Sharrock had possibly consumed a small alcoholic beverage prior to her death. The fat man was spotted near the Wanda Beach area four times on the day of the girls' murders. Between 10am and 12.10pm, the fat man was spotted moving in a generally northern direction towards the Wanda Beach area. And apparently the encounters people had with him were typical of the fat man, talking about girls' private parts, propositioning sex, mentioning bikinis as you mentioned in Adelaide. He
0: was last seen by a man named Brian McCann at about 12.40pm on the day of the murders, standing out the front of the Wanda Surf Club, then walking off in a northerly direction along the beach. Barry Ezzy, the local surf lifesaver who we mentioned before, recalled the fat man from around this time as well.
1: He was an unusual sort of a character and he was uh, annoying girls on the beach at that time. And I asked him to leave the beach, um... Because of his behaviour, he was annoying girls and uh, he became uh, a bit of a suspect, I believe. The police were very interested in that bit of information, but to my knowledge, he was never, ever located and I never saw him again. Um, And we had to sort of escort him from the beach and send him on his way.
0: The fat man was never identified and not seen again that afternoon or thereafter, Shirley Lennon was harassed by another person of interest around this time as well. It was a younger, fairer haired boy who propositioned her for sex. There was also reports of another couple of men who were once again around the Green Hills wander area on or around the date of the murders, and these guys were similarly doing lurid things like walking around naked and exposing themselves. So it was a real hive of activity for the sick and twisted this area, clearly and most if not all of these persons of interest would just end up disappearing into the dunes, never to be seen again, never to come forward or be identified during the investigation. The police continued to patrol the area, undercover officers, sunbathing and things like that, but they'd only ever end up catching unscrupulous sorts, perverts mostly.
2: The police would also have to investigate and endure the disappointment of a spate of false confessions in the time after the Wanda Beach murders. There were five in total. One of the more serious ones came from an estranged nephew of a lady in Tasmania. This guy was referred to as Lavon, although that's a pseudonym. Lavon showed up at his auntie's house from Sydney one day. She barely recognised him, but invited him in to stay for the night. Over the course of a few days, his behaviour grew so strange and erratic, she reported him to the police about the Wanda murders. Because of references he'd made, he was very much trying to insert himself into the crime. Police
0: would actually fly down to Tasmania to interview Lavon, but in the end, his confession was proven false after details he gave just didn't match up with the crime scene at all. And he eventually broke down crying, stating that he tells lies and gets mixed up. Mixed up as he was, he was never in the mix as a serious suspect. He got the murder weapon wrong, the acts committed were wrong, everything. Police proved he wasn't even at Wanda on the day of the killings, and the disappointment of the promising trip to Tasmania set in. Soon after, the police had another promising confession from a young man named Caleb, who ended up placing himself at Wanda Beach on the day of the murders claiming that he'd black out and couldn't remember anything after a certain period of time until later in the day. He eventually confessed and said he must have done it. He had some personal and emotional issues, Caleb, which we won't get into, but once again, police proved his details were inaccurate when they actually took him to Wanda Beach for a walk and Caleb took them to a spot 400 metres away from where the bodies had been discovered and relayed numerous incorrect facts that he'd only sexually assaulted one of the girls, he hadn't bludgeoned either of them, and he dug a deep grave in the sand, all factually inaccurate.
2: So the police investigation, as earnest as it was, as thorough as it was for the time, and we mentioned the amount of interviews and typed reports this case had, eventually the case went cold and the investigation, while always still bubbling away, ground to pretty much a halt. It was always wondered and speculated that attacks in the months and years after this were the work of the Wanda Beach killer, whether it was a reported attack on a train or at the beach, but nothing would ever flag as a connection or provide police with a serious lead in the investigation. Police would
0: continue to put out sketches of suspects, identikit photos, even full size dummies of the people they wanted identified or to come forward and talk There was a $20,000 reward issued for information leading to the apprehension of the perpetrator. It was in pounds at the time, around £10,000, later converted when Australia changed to the dollar. It was a record setting reward at the time, 50 odd years ago, but that reward still exists today, $20,000. It's hard to reason that amount nowadays, with this case being as infamous as any unsolved murder in this country's history many which have $500,000 and $1 million rewards. So we've covered off the crime, the crime scene, the investigation, a frustrating one for the police and families involved with these false confessions, dead-end leads and lack of people coming forward. We're almost ready to discuss suspects, but before we get to that, we're just going to touch on two other unsolved murders from the same area and same time that have been potentially linked by police. We say potentially and not definitively because there's some striking similarities and obvious differences with these cases and the Wanda Beach murders.
2: Around one year after the Wanda Beach murders, on Saturday the 29th of January, about one hour away in Wollongong, butcher Thomas Fitzgibbon arrived at the Piccadilly Arcade in Crown Street to begin work. This was around 20 to 6 in the morning. While heading into his work in the Gladstone Street end of the arcade, Fitzgibbons noticed a trail of seemingly random objects scattered along the ground, leading to a set of stairs that went down into the basement car park, an odd sight to see in the morning, and the items were strange, broken false teeth, a watch and an apron.
0: Upon inspection of the basement car park, Fitzgibbons discovered the body of Wilhelmina Kruger, the cleaner of the arcade, lying in a pool of blood, and he contacted the police immediately. Wilhelmina Kruger had been beaten, strangled, stabbed in the neck and head and she had a burst heart muscle from a forceful chest compression examiners thought could have been a knee to the chest. They couldn't conclusively determine sexual assault. The Piccadilly murder, as it was called at the time, would go unsolved until this very day, like the Wanda Beach murders, as police initially believed this to be a crime of passion. Kruger had an up and down love life at times, it was said, But when the investigation once again went cold, detectives were left with no definitive suspects or leads, and the media and police themselves began to speculate the killer was likely the same as the Wanda Beach murderer. And it was mainly the method of killings that was used to link these, as the victim types and locations were obviously very different.
2: Around one month later, Anya Delinkoa's body was discovered on the side of old Illawarra Road in Menai around 45 kilometres away from Wollongong, two young boys who were travelling with a guy named Roy Streeting. Streeting had stopped to change his tyre when the two youngsters smelled something foul and wandered off to investigate. They stumbled across the body. Anya's body had also been moved sometime after she'd been killed, dragged closer to the road, so it was thought that the killer wanted his handiwork to be discovered.
0: Anya was a sex worker, from what I deduced, and initially the police once again were reticent to link the cases, but it was obvious to most. She'd suffered much of the same injuries, and once again, most police now believe these crimes are linked due to the frenzied nature of the attacks and knife as the main murder weapon. But as with Kruger and the Wanda Beach murders, police were unable to identify the killer, Despite $10,000 rewards for both of these murders being issued at the time, the Dowling Coa murder was made more difficult to gain for police by her industry which was difficult to track information and also she'd used several aliases throughout her life. Now we come to a guy named Alan Bassett. So this guy is a convicted murderer who spent 30 years in jail for ruthlessly raping and killing 19-year-old Carolyn Orphan. Her body was found on Saturday the 11th of June 1966 by a couple on Mount Ousley Road. This road connects Wollongong to Sydney, incidentally.
2: Her arms had been bound behind her back with a stocking and a piece of rope, strangled with another stocking around her throat, and she'd suffered an unbelievable head injury, which had clearly been caused by a nearby blood-stained sandstone rock. Carolyn had already been reported missing. She'd attended a go-go dance at the Ironworks building the night before with a bunch of girlfriends. They had met some new male friends that night and had had a dance. Carolyn was seen leaving by a number of people with a young man driving a light-coloured Morris Minor before midnight.
0: And it was his car that eventually linked Bassett to the murder. He lived not too far away, really, and not far from Carolyn Orphan, so his vehicle was spotted, reported. They tracked Bassett down at his father's service station. Despite the vehicle having been cleaned, the police still found forensic traces of blood stains, hair, and a palm print. So Bassett then had to attend the police station and enter a lineup, and he was pretty quickly identified by one of Carolyn's girlfriends.
2: After an initial denial, Bassett confessed to the crime, stating that he just didn't know what had come over him. He was forthcoming with details of what he had done but seemed to downplay the severity of what he had done. Maybe he just didn't realise the gravity of it. But he seemed to have no remorse either, just an understanding of what he had done and a play-by-play of it but no association with the seriousness of it at all. Bassett was eventually convicted and sentenced to a life term of 30 years.
0: A few things about Alan Bassett and this crime that made him a person of interest in the Wanda Beach murders. Bassett was completely naked when he dragged Carolyn Orphan's body from the car after strangling her. That ties in with people seeing a naked man at Wanda Beach on the day of the murders, It's been theorised that this is possibly part of an MO, committing murder naked as to not leave any clues. Secondly, Carolyn Orphan was menstruating at the time of her murder, and in addition to the stocking used to strangle her, Bassett had also used the elastic of her sanitary pad, something he denied knowledge of. There's also a possible connection here with the evidence at the scene where Christine's body was found. It was deduced that he was possibly in Cronulla on the day of the murders as well. There was also some similarities with the Kruger and Dowling Coa murders, the main things being the knee to the chest. Apparently Bassett admitted to doing this too often and examiners proposed this had also happened to Wilhelmina Kruger. The frenzied nature of the attack, the proximity once again, injuries to the sexual organs and breasts, the strangulation and the way the bodies were left partially exposed and that both murders occurred on Saturday mornings on holiday weekends. Bassett was eventually diagnosed schizophrenic and housed for the term of his sentence at the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital.
2: But perhaps the biggest thing, the most discussed thing about the Alan Bassett potential involvement in the Wanda Beach murders comes from a painting A New South Wales police detective, Cess Johnson, who worked on the Wanda Beach investigation, had Bassett in his crosshairs for many years and pursued him for a confession, something Bassett never gave and always denied any involvement in. Cess Johnson was so consumed by his theory of Bassett being the Wanda murderer, he eventually retired from the force, largely because of his obsession. Johnson passed away in 1980 with the Wanda murderer still unapprehended. But Johnson spoke to Bassett many, many times, and the pair actually built up some rapport. Johnson often spoke with Bassett's family too. There was the ongoing issue of Bassett's schizophrenia to deal with here too. So from what I understand, Johnson was always mindful of this.
0: One time, Bassett's father told Johnson next time he visited that Alan had a present for him. Bassett gave Johnson a painting he'd done. It was a painting of a bush scene, which Johnson thought was pretty ugly, but one day he had an epiphany and declared that the painting had potential murder clues contained within it about the murders of Marianne Schmidt, Christine Sharrock, Wilhelmina Kruger and Anya Dalinkoa. Johnson was adamant on this and basically, as we said, he followed this theory to his grave, convinced that Bassett was the murderer... We're going to post the painting and another sort of condensed version of the painting, highlighting what Johnson believed were the clues. We're going to do that on our Instagram so you can have a look and decide for yourself. It's important to note that while some people got behind Johnson's theory, from the sounds of things, most in the New South Wales police force didn't agree with Johnson, respectfully. Bassett's own father, however, thought his son was the Wanda Beach murderer and is on the record, as I understand, stating that in the media.
2: There was nothing tying Bassett to the Wanda murders other than this theory and some circumstantial tidbits it's important to note. Also Bassett came forward in recent years and offered a DNA sample to clear his name. In 1995 Bassett was
0: released back into the custody of New South Wales Department of Health and gradually integrated back into the community. He's consistently professed his innocence for any other crimes other than the one he was convicted of. Another suspect in the Wanda Beach murders, someone we know all too well, is a man named Christopher Wilder. Now, we dived into great detail on Christopher Wilder in our last episode, so if you haven't listened to that, please check it out. It's quite epic and gives you a really good idea of the kind of guy we're dealing with here.
2: Wilder was thrown into the mix in the years after the Wanda murders by his ex-mother-in-law. What she reported exactly, we don't know. But the file on Wilder pertaining to his potential involvement went astray or buried. He was never interviewed about these murders. But there'd be renewed interest in theories of his involvement after his spree and subsequent death in 1984 and then again in recent years. Channel 7 did a story on Wilder and his potential involvement – And Duncan McNabb, in his outstanding book on Wilder, entitled The Snapshot Killer, puts forward all of the compelling points about Wilder.
0: Wilder had a sordid history of sexual offences prior to his escalation to murder that we know of in 1984. He was in Australia, in the suburb of West Ryde, actually where Marianne and Christine lived at the time of the murders. He does have a history of committing attacks with all of these hallmarks, perhaps with less of a frenzied element to them, but nevertheless, just as brutal. Wilder had a connection with the beach as well, regularly spending time there as a youngster, and then in Miami in later years. If we recall, his main MO was the photography ruse, where he'd approach young women on the beach, lure them away with the promise of some portfolio shots, and then he'd strike. He'd also attacked a pair of victims before too, attempting to control two females simultaneously. We saw that a couple of times in the last episode, so that also ties in with him as a suspect.
2: And he was 19 at this time, a blonde, light brown-haired, possibly surfy-looking guy, perhaps a little older than Wolfgang described, but in the ballpark. We'll post an age-regressed photo of Wilder too, because most online of him are in his 30s, brown-haired with a beard. If we believe the knife that was found on Wanda Beach to be the murder weapon, it's proposed by McNabb fairly regularly in his book that experts noted the knife found in Wilder's kill kit after his inevitable demise was similar, with one sharp and one serrated edge, similar in size too. And the knife found on Wanda Beach was potentially made in the USA, as experts had previously said. So on paper, There's some tangible links to put Wilder in the frame as a suspect.
0: But there's also some holes in the Wilder theory. Firstly, while he'd been convicted of a rape at the time of the Wanda murders, it would be a further 18 years until he committed murder, that we know of. As we covered last week, there's certainly some compelling circumstantial evidence that he may have killed earlier, but not 18 years earlier, maybe one or two or three. So the escalation of criminality here is a concern. It's possible he had a frenzied freak out and spent the next 18 years trying to keep a lid on things before it all boiled over and he went on his infamous spree, sadly taking all of the lives that he did. But it could also be a stretch. It's very convenient. And as we said, Wilder was a psychopath, but he wasn't a frenzied maniac. He was a calculated homicidal maniac but with a very convincing facade. So that doesn't match with the proposed profile of the Wanderkiller in that sense. And as we said, Wilder also might have been a bit older than the surfy youth that Wolfgang described. And we know that while he frequented the beach, Wilder wasn't much of a participator. So if the crab-catching, spear-fishing, towel-carrying youth was Wilder, I can't picture Wilder conducting that activity myself. He was more of a car park lurker.
2: And while he lured people from the beach, his crimes were committed away from the beach by at large and he'd drive these girls away to locations where he could threaten and control them. He didn't have a murder that we know of that was anything like Wanda. So while he's certainly got more than enough evidence there to connect him and a history that also suits, for me he's probably third in the suspect list behind Alan Bassett And this next guy, who many people believe is the prime suspect in the Wanda Beach murders.
0: And that guy's name is Derek Percy. Percy was a child killer who was imprisoned for murdering Yvonne Tui on a Victorian beach in July 1969. Percy, a loner with a high IQ, was just a schoolboy in the Victorian town of Mount Beauty when people began to notice his strange behaviour. He was once seen standing in a river dressed in women's clothing, waving a knife around while defecating. Later, as a teenager, he was found in a caravan with two girls who had their pants down. They were very young girls. Covering off a few details about the murder of Yvonne Tui here, Chloe.
2: 12 year old Yvonne Tui was at a beach in a small town of Wanit in Western Port Bay, Victoria. One day in July 1969, she was talking with her friend Shane Spiller, then aged 11. Percy, a 21-year-old member of the Navy, seized Tui and put a knife to her throat. He would probably have abducted Spiller as well, but Spiller was carrying a tomahawk, which he waved to stop Percy approaching him. Percy abducted Tui and drove off with her. Spiller was able to describe Percy, his car, and a naval badge on the car, to police the description led the police to the HMAS Cerberus from where Percy was on weekend leave. They found him within three hours of the murder and caught him red-handed. He was washing the blood from his clothes.
0: Percy was tried and found not guilty by reason of insanity and he was sentenced to be detained at the governor's pleasure. Prison officers described him as a model prisoner one of them saying that he's highly intelligent but you could never get a handle on his real feelings and also commenting that he's our Hannibal Lecter. In 2005, there'd be renewed interest from police in Percy as a suspect in many unsolved cases after a bunch of boxes were found in a South Melbourne storage unit. Police obtained a warrant to seize this material, the material which was packed in tea chests and cardboard boxes, included newspaper articles on sex crimes, pictures of children, a video with a rape theme and handwritten stories on fresh sex offences involving abduction and torture.
2: The cases for which police suspect Percy's involvement are the Wanda Beach murders of Christine Sharrock and Marianne Schmidt, both aged 16, the one we're talking about today, the murder of Simon Brooke, aged 3, in Glebe, Inner Sydney, on May 19, 1968, The disappearance of Linda Stilwell, age 8, from St Kilda, Melbourne on Saturday the 10th of August 1968, the murder of Alan Redstone, age 6, in Canberra in September 1968, and the abduction and disappearance of the Beaumont children from Glenelg Beach on the 26th of January 1966.
0: His connection with Wanda specifically, as in the Toohey case, the victims were taken from the beach and dumped nearby. The crutch area of one of the girls' bathers had been cut. Percy had been slashing female underwear at Mount Beauty in late 1964, just weeks earlier. The Percy family took holidays to coincide with yacht races around Australia. That summer, the National Yachting Regatta was at Botany Bay Yachting Club near Wanda Beach. Percy's grandparents lived walking distance from the West Ride railway station where the two girls caught the train. After police arrested Percy at Cerberus, they found a diary in which he described his urges to sexually abuse, torture, murder and mutilate children. They also found drawings of naked children and women. In one excerpt, Percy wrote that he would force one of his victims to drink beer. As we remember, the autopsy results of Christine's uh, had a blood alcohol reading of 015 In his murder blueprint, he wrote about abducting and killing two girls at Barnsley, a New South Wales beach in northern New South Wales. Police believed that this was code for Wanda Beach. There was also a picture discovered, allegedly which Percy had drawn, that bore striking similarities to the Wanda murders.
2: It was 1966 and Percy had moved to Coriong High School when a classmate teased him after he saw the obvious resemblance to the identikit photo of the Wanda suspect. Percy got pretty upset after this comment. It's been said that, based on the identikits, witnesses recalled seeing a young man resembling Percy, talking with the girls on the train and at the beach. And Percy did have a recurring beach connection, similar to Wilder in that regard. He repeatedly stated that he could not remember whether or not he had committed any further crimes did place himself in many of the locations of those earlier mentioned crimes at the time of their occurrence.
0: I also read in Justine Ford's Unsolved Australia book a mention of defecated male clothes being found at the Wanda Beach scene. I hadn't read that anywhere else prior to reading that and that came from a Victoria police detective. So you would think that... He wouldn't say that unless it was fact from a file, so if that's true, it's another piece of compelling evidence linking Percy because he had a major fecal fetish. Another small point is that Percy had a knife in a scabbard on his hip the day he was arrested for the murder of Yvonne Tui, and we know that the young bloke at Wanda that Wolfgang saw also had a sheathed knife on his hip that day. Once again, circumstantial but interesting. Percy died from lung cancer in St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne on the 23rd of July 2013, aged 64, without admitting to any further crimes. At the time, he was the longest serving prison inmate in Australia, some 44 years. So I think we can see why Percy is a popular suspect. Once again, there's things that go against the theory of him being the killer, One he was a pedophile so it's strange to think that he went after two girls who would have been closer to his own age at the time and not the Schmidt children or other children if he indeed was the killer. There's no physical evidence linking Percy to the crime and once again just circumstantial and anecdotal evidence that he was in the area. If the Kruger and Dowling Coa murders are linked to Wanda I'm not sure how Percy fits in there if he's ever been to Wollongong or was in that area at the time also.
2: And once again, it's very easy in hindsight to draw all of these links with someone who has a history that you can bend to fit the story you want or fit the suspect you want. Then we have the fat man. Is it possible that Percy was the fat man? Maybe. He does match some of the descriptions. And there's a possible Adelaide connection there but the fat man was a pest over a period of time over summer, so Percy would have had to have been on a fairly long holiday in the area if it was him.
0: We're going to talk in detail about Derek Percy in our next episode. This guy has an incredibly sick and twisted history to discuss, and while he was only arrested for the one murder, police suspect he could be our country's worst child serial killer. In 2012, the police retested DNA... There was a spot of blood on one of the girls' clothings that uh, they'd hoped could be used. It showed that it was a male, but the profile was too weak, unable to be tested further. In time, perhaps they'll be able to retest as technology advances.
2: As we mentioned earlier, the semen sample taken was also lost and the knife blade. It's unknown that it's even still in evidence or could be DNA tested at all, but it's likely if it was still around, it would have been looked at when the shorts were. It's possibly been lost, but also may never have been connected in the first place. But to this day, the murderer of Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrock remains at large, if he is still alive.
0: But whether he is or isn't, and if he's ever caught or not, it'll never bring back these two bright young souls. Their families have had to endure their loss, live with the grief and heartache surrounding the investigation over the years, watch the case turn into something that's retold by podcasts. I just hope if there is any semblance of an afterlife for our souls that Christine and Marianne are both at peace.
2: I totally agree. These poor girls. This crime was particularly brutal, I think, especially for their age. And it's not particularly helpful to think about the technology available now and if it could have made a difference, but I can't help but do it. This case isn't that old, but the amount of tools and technology available now is just so much more advanced. The fact that familial DNA testing can be accurately used to link people who may have evaded police until now, it just seems like the answer could be so close. I do think that whoever committed this crime did end up in jail, Learning the details of it, the likelihood of someone being capable of this and then being free seems to me highly unlikely. It's an awful feeling to think that someone could be out in the world hurting people and not be punished for it. So I at least hope that they are in jail or dead potentially. I really hope their family is okay, as you said, Sean, and as always, my heart aches for them that they had to endure something like this.
0: It's also entirely possible the murderer is someone unknown, not on this suspect list. Granted, the three we mentioned are all good suspects, but there was just that many perverted people in the area at the time of the murders. It could have been someone completely off the radar. I feel like one day that this case will be solved with the advances in DNA. I think they might be able to at least eliminate some suspects. With the info that we have on hand, I wanted to like Wilder as the prime suspect after covering him, but I just don't. He's number three for me, followed by Bassett and Percy, but even then, you know Bassett coming forward with his DNA, you've almost got to take him out as well. So Percy's right up there, along with the fat man as the X factor. I like the fat man theory, but there's just not enough on it, and with the passage of time, there likely never will be. Once again it's one of those old cases that's almost like folklore and that was one thing I liked about Alan Whittaker's book that I read in researching this was the emphasis on Christine and Marianne as people, not just footnotes in Australian true crime history. I really feel for those Schmidt kids that saw their sister and her friend walk off and never saw them again. I think as they've all matured they would have had to have dealt with different stresses around this when they came to realise what had actually happened and that would have been incredibly hard to deal with and Christine and Marianne's mothers and grandparents, what they had to endure. It's just so sad that two seemingly good-natured, respectful women were taken so young by a maniac.
2: So we're done with that case um we're going to move on to some chat and some five star review thank yous um and also some talk about some feedback we've got so we have had some new five star reviews the first one was from dragonfly crafts it says love true crime and this aussie duo are top notch stories i've heard before but so much more information than i've had before the extras sound exciting so i've signed up for patreon for the first time Love your foot, feel good endings with book club, Netflix and other great stories. Keep up the good work. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. The next one is by Pizza Hut. Uh, it says, loving your work, Sean and Chloe. Very well-researched podcast, which is delivered in a unique, thorough, sometimes lighthearted, but nonetheless respectful manner. Look forward to future offerings. Thank you so much.
0: I'll give you a chop out on the next one, Chloe. The next one is from J Chef. It's entitled Great Podcast. I've just listened to your podcast on the Scaff Brothers, Absolute Germs. I was unaware of the hostility between Bilal and Robert Black Farmer. As Lauren's cousin, that attack was very traumatic for everyone associated. I look forward to your podcast on this creature, although not looking forward to reliving it. No, I imagine you wouldn't, or nor would any of your family. That podcast episode is on Patreon. If you'd uh, like to listen to it, we did try and focus on... Lauren's recovery and yeah, how she well was she's done. She was amazing. So thank you for the review.
2: Yes, thank you. The next one is from Colette14 um, and it is called Respect, spelt out like the song. <laughs> so everyone's hopefully <laughs> singing that in their head. Uh, the review says, This is the first true crime podcast with a single standalone episodes that I have really gotten into. The cases are always well-researched and retold in an informative and respectful manner whereby you feel that it has been written in mind that family members may be listening. Love learning the unknown cases and always come away with a new perspective on more well-known recent cases. Well done. Thank you. That's very thoughtful.
0: Yes, thank you very much. So these next two, clo are probably a great segue into the feedback that uh, you mentioned before and we would be tackling uh, at the end of the show today. So we'll read those and then get into that.
2: Yes. So the next one uh, was from Brad's. Uh, It says, research is extensive, some repetition, but this will improve. Please refrain from applying nicknames to the characters, i.e. Popeye for Leonard Fraser. You guys are better than this. Keep it professional. It's one podcast where the hosts are very compatible.
0: I'll try pronouncing the next one for you, Chloe. I think it's Boisim de Juju.
2: I think so. Yes. Okay. And the review says, great voices and presentation of cases. I just think some comments are meant to be comic in inappropriate situations. So apart from that, this show is at the top of the best crime podcasts.
0: Yeah. So I think we've got two great reviews there who've acknowledged that we're doing well and rated us five stars, which is much appreciated. But they've also highlighted a couple of areas they think we can improve. So thanks to Brad's and Boijim de Juju for your feedback. We will do better. I, in particular, on that front, I think it's fair to say, Chloe, that the podcast is reaching many more ears than we initially anticipated when we started this. In those first few handful of episodes, while we've always strived to be very respectful of the victims... Um, I've certainly taken my fair share of swipes at the perpetrators and while I and some others might find that funny, um, it's a good point about professionalism and context. That kind of talk might be best left for a barbecue with friends on the weekend and not on the podcast. It all depends on the podcast that we want to be as well. You know, we're, we're rolling along well, we want to improve, but we don't want to strip all of the personality from the show either. Uh, But I think we can still keep that without the nicknames and calling every criminal a POS. So I will do better. And thank you both for the five-star review and the honest feedback.
2: And as we said at the beginning, we're putting more of the show notes and banter towards the end. So for those who want to stick around and hear that, they can. And for those that don't, they don't have to skip forward and miss some of the case. Um, I too have received some feedback about my presentation and I'm working on it as well. We're both novice, so it will take time. I've had some contact with a professional in the radio industry recently about some advice on improving that aspect of the show and my presentation style. Thank you to everyone who takes the time to write to us and give us feedback. We really appreciate it and we are trying to improve.
0: Absolutely. Keep listening, guys. We'll keep uh, working on the weaker points and strengthening the strengths as well. But now we get to some happy thoughts and I've got a really good happy thought for you this week. It's that I'm not sick. Yay! (laughs) Yay, that we
2: get to do podcasts. (laughs) I know. It felt,
0: like I said at the start, really weird not having it pop up on the phone. I still get a kick out of it when the new <laughs> one comes up and it didn't come out and I was just like waiting for people to say messages, you know, where was the episode? Where's the episode? And I had like... The
2: fans weren't beating down yeah, the door. Yeah, no, weren't <laughs> beating down had like two. <laughs> and so everyone knows John did show up that week to record but he looked like shit and I told him that we had to call in and go home. So it wasn't for lack of trying, that's yeah. for sure. Um. And my happy thought is that weather chat's back. Weather it's chat. It's really cold <laughs> and I love when it's cold. Um, I got a weighted blanket a little while ago and there's a good chance I've already shared this but... It's So it's a blanket, it weighs 10 kilos, and sitting under a weighted blanket when it's cold is one of the most relaxing things I've done in my whole life. Um, We put the fire on last weekend, and there were so many blankets, and I cooked like a curry and, you know, other saucy stuff you eat with rice, and it just makes me so happy. So food, weather, (laughs) I nailed all the topics, I think.
0: (laughs) Very good, very good. Uh, We've got the uh, Patreon stuff now, which we're going to insert at the end here the email and the social stuff. So if you're interested, you can support the show on Patreon. The uh, link we'll put in the show notes on whatever app you're listening on. So click on that, head across to Patreon for $2 a month. There's a whole lot uh, more additional content from us there. You can just um, type in www.patreon.com slash Crime as well, and that will take you straight there.
2: If you have any story suggestions, feedback, or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Podcast, or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime.
0: We'll be back next week with a deep dive into the sick mind of Derek Percy and another awesome Patreon episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will catch you all next time.